today we're going to continue in our series on the book of Revelation. And uh, it's kind of a long passage. So we're going to read from chapter 6. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 7 all the way until chapter 8, verse 5. And uh, I guess I was debating about whether to, to break it up and to, to make it shorter. But this is actually one complete vision. And I thought it was important to read it uh, in its entirety. So uh, this, this will probably take a few minutes, but it's never a bad thing to, uh, to read more scripture. So uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were, the, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from, from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Before we start, let's let's pray, and uh, let me let me just offer up a brief prayer. Uh, God, we thank you for um, you know your word of truth, and especially through the book of Revelation, it comes to us in very unique ways. And uh, we pray, God, that you would give us understanding today, but maybe even more than understanding, uh, we pray that your word would do what uh, it is intended to do. And uh, I think in this text, um, uh, it intends to lead us to worship you, to uh, dwell in your presence. And so even as we hear from your word, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to spend a few months looking at the book of Revelation. And last week we saw, um, you know, John had a vision of one who was seated on a throne holding a scroll. And when the angel asks who is worthy to open the scroll, John begins to weep and he realizes that no one in heaven or on earth is able to open the scroll. Then it's announced that the Lion of Judah is able to open the scroll. And so Jesus, uh, pictured as a slain lamb, he takes the scroll and all of heaven and earth begin to worship him. And this vision really picks up on that uh, because John now sees each of the seven seals being opened one by one. And in terms of the, the structure of this entire vision, you have the six seals that are being opened. And then chapter seven serves as this kind of like interlude. And then the beginning of chapter eight, it shows us what happens when the seventh and final seal is opened, which is actually transitional to uh, the next vision. Um, now, if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, uh, you, get, you know that there's a lot of sevens and there's also a lot of images of judgment. And the seven seals are open and then the seven trumpets are blown and then the, the seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. And the way you can interpret these seven cycles, uh, it really determines how you understand history unfolding and our place on that historical timeline. And if you analyze how this section has been interpreted, there's a, uh, generally been four ways of understanding this section. And I'm not going to go into all four different schools of interpretation because uh, you know that's gonna get a little bit tedious, but let me just make a few distinctions and tell you where I land. Uh, some people have understood these cycles of seven 
as tied to specific events or to specific people even in history. And some have understood these cycles of seven to be on this, this linear timeline. And so uh, events from the fall of the Roman Empire to the struggle uh, with the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation have been read into the book of Revelation. And I don't necessarily rule that out. Uh, which is why I don't think these different schools of interpretation are necessarily completely incompatible with one another. But uh, at least to me, it makes more sense to understand these seven cycles as a recapitulation of the same story from a different perspective. So there's a style of writing that's used in poet poetic language, and you often see it, for example, in Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And uh, there are all kinds of different kinds of parallels. So uh, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but uh, basically it's where one line would say uh, something, and then the very next line would actually say the same thing in content, but say it in a, in a slightly different way. And uh, I think you see this on a larger scale in uh, some of the prophetic literature where they would recapitulate the same event only from different angles. And that's how I take these different seven cycles that we're going to uh, begin to embark on. These seven cycles are a little bit like Hebrew parallelism or prophetic literature in that they are referring to the same content, but they are uh, approaching it from slightly uh, different ways or different perspectives. So if I'm going to put it in movie terms, uh, I would say it like this. It's the difference between uh, Godfather 1, 2, and 3, which actually, by the way, I haven't, I haven't seen any of them. So I'm just making an assumption here. I hope I'm right in my assumption. I think it's a little bit like Godfather 1, 2, and 3, where, uh, you know, it's a linear timeline and time is kind of moving with each sequel uh, versus like the reboots of the Spider-Man movies, right? So Godfather consists of this linear sequence that progresses through time. And Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man with Tom Holland, they are all different takes on the same Spider-Man story. So I wouldn't say the first uh, cycle of seven is like Godfather 1, and then the second cycle is Godfather 2, third cycle is Godfather 3. But I would say the first cycle is Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, and then the second cycle is Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield, and the third cycle is Spider-Man with... Tom Holland. I think basically these seven, uh, these cycles of seven are talking about the same story of redemption, but from different angles. So uh, that's just to give you a brief overview of where we are and how I'm approaching these next set of visions. Uh, so all that says, I, I won't be tying any of these visions to specific historical events, uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't connected to history or the world that we embody. Uh, in any way, because whatever happens in the spiritual realm does impact the world we live in. Uh, the message of Revelation wouldn't have the power to encourage or to warn us if that weren't the case. And so while I can't tie World War II or the Great Depression to anything in this vision, I can tie the presence or the existence of wars in general or the, the problem of famine to this vision. So this vision, it begins with the lamb opening the seven seals one by one. And for the first four seals, which I think are uh, supposed to be grouped together, you have four horses of varying colors that appear. The first horse is a white horse, which symbolizes conquest. The second horse is red, and uh, the red horse symbolizes conflict and strife. Uh, the third horse is black and represents uh, scarcity, or some people say famine. And the fourth horse is this pale horse, which represents death. And if you read some of the imagery, which I'm not gonna go over, uh, some of that is pretty clear. Now, if you take the meaning of the first four seals and the first, uh, these four horses, conquest, strife, famine, and death, together, 
they show us how God would bring forth judgment into the world. And uh, this is where the popular culture gets, right, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Some people have interpreted this to be something that has already occurred in the first century. Some people have interpreted this to be something that's going to happen as some kind of future tribulation event. Uh, I think in popular culture, a lot of people probably assume the four horsemen, four horsemen uh, is something that will happen at a future apocalyptic event. Uh, but I don't interpret it that way. My interpretation is that the four horses have already been unleashed into the world and that we have already experienced and continue to experience these things. And that's what I mean by not tying it to a specific historical event, but not disconnecting it from the reality that we live in. The reason there are wars, the reason there is strife, the reason there's oppression, the reason there's economic hardship, the reason why there's hunger and death in the world is because God has already started to judge the world on account of its sin. Now, after the vision of Revelation 4 to 5, uh, you know, the question that naturally arises is this. If God is seated upon the throne in heaven, if God is in control of all things, then why does the world stink, right? <laughs> That's the question. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in this world? Why is there pandemic in this world? Why are there wars? Why are there conflicts? Why is there polarization? Why are there famines? Why is there death? And I think Revelation 6 is beginning uh, to answer that question. And it's not because God is not in control. It's not because God is not seated upon his throne. It's not because Satan has any kind of real power or authority against the one who is seated upon the throne. But I think the answer is it's actually the very opposite. These things are in the world because God is seated on his throne. This is part of God's plan of redemption. Judgment is not a, a deviation from God's plan, uh, but it's actually a part of it as the, the scroll is being unrolled. Now, I, I recognize that gets into some deeper philosophical questions and uh, certainly some pastoral questions about why would God allow evil and suffering in our lives? And this can be a frustrating question because there really isn't anything that would satisfy us in terms of a direct answer. And I'm definitely sensitive to the reality of the impact that suffering has on our lives and uh, the, the desire to get an answer of why God would allow something to happen. But even though uh, we don't get a direct answer, it doesn't mean God doesn't say anything about understanding the evil in the world uh, you know, I, I've heard Tim Keller say it like this. He would say, well, we don't know why God allows evil and suffering in the world, but we do know for sure that God is not indifferent to it. He sent Jesus to die on a cross, which means God does care about us, that God does care about the suffering that we experience. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to put an end to it. Uh, there's another book that I read a long time ago by uh, the scholar named N.T. Wright called Evil and the Justice of God. And I thought it was actually a really helpful book on this subject. And basically what he says is even though he can't answer the impossible philosophical questions about evil, uh, he can point us to signs of God's new world that for comes to fruition on the basis of the death of Jesus and the power of the spirit so that we can live with hope even as we live in the present evil age. And he also has this little commentary on the book of Revelation, and this is how he illustrates it. He puts it into the a context of like a counseling session or a therapy session. And he says, you know, someone might come in with a problem, but the problem that they think they have 
is usually not the only problem that they have. They might come in because they have some kind of conflict in, in their relationship. Uh, but there's actually deeper problems at work like fear or depression or trauma or guilt of some kind. And the relationship conflict can only be re fully resolved when those deeper issues are resolved. But to address those deeper issues will not only be uncomfortable, but for many people, it will probably be a painful experience for that person. So he says, that's a bit of what we see in Revelation 6. He says, unless we lay out the problems to their full extent, no real healing can take place. Unless the ills of the world are brought out, shown up in their true colors, put on display, and allowed to do their worst, they cannot be overthrown. Unless the four horsemen ride out and do what they have to do, the scroll cannot be read. The victory of the lion lamb will not be complete. So the judgment of these four horsemen it's not in opposition to God's plan, but it is actually a part of it. And we, of course, don't know all the reasons why, but it is a necessary part of the plan in order for the world to be redeemed and resurrected so that all evil and suffering would be vanquished once and for all. And if you think about it, the ultimate display of God's sovereignty over all things, including God's sovereignty over evil, is actually when he is able to use evil for his good purposes. Uh, I guess the way I thought about it is a little bit like a boxer. A boxer can be strong enough to beat his opponent versus, uh, you know, a boxer who is not only strong enough to beat his opponent, but is also skilled enough to use his opponent's attacks against him and counter moves. Who's in more control in that boxing match? I would say the boxer who can use their opponent's attack uh, against him probably demonstrates ultimate control or sovereignty in the ring. I think the best display of God's sovereignty on the throne is that he can actually use Satan's evil against him for the good purposes of redemption. You know, the cross is the greatest example of that, where God would use death and God would use defeats to bring about redemption for the world. And if anything, that shows that God really does reign over all things and is in control of all things. Now, the first four seals, it addresses evil and suffering in the world generally, but then when we get to this fifth seal and it's opened, it focuses on Christian martyrs. And the martyrs, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And uh, if you remember from last week's passage, you remember that there were prayers of the saints in that vision last week. And I said, these prayers are not just general prayers, but they're actually prayers for God to bring justice. Uh, well, this, this passage is why when the fifth seal is opened, they are crying out for God to bring judgment upon those who have killed them unjustly for their witness or for their faith. And some people have pointed out that uh, this is actually the only passage in the Bible that says anything about the state of the Christian dead. And they aren't crying out for spiteful vengeance, but they are crying out because their heart aches and they desire to see the world filled with the righteousness of God. And uh, they don't see it. So they're crying out to God, like how, right, how long basically, which is a cry of some of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Now they're given a white robe and told to rest uh, or wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. And this white robe symbolizes victory and vindication. And God is putting it on them as if to say, victory is coming soon and you will soon be vindicated. 
uh, you know, in the PGA, there's this golf tournament called the Masters. And, uh, you know, if you win the Masters, you get this like green uh, sports coat. <laughs> um, and you, you basically join the club of victors who won the tournament in the past. And putting on a white robe is as if God is saying to them, you, you are victors. And even though victory isn't consummated yet, it will come. And so wear this white robe for now and wait a bit because something major will happen before you get the justice that you are crying out for. So what is that thing that will happen? And that leads to the sixth seal. The sixth seal has to be opened. And when that seal is opened, what it says is, there was a great earthquake, the sun became black, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. And this seal depicts the final judgment. Uh, that's always been part of the Christian faith. We used to recite the Apostles' Creed back in the day, and uh, there's a place in it where it says, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that's referring to the final judgment when Jesus returns. So whereas you have uh, the first five seals are things that I would say, my interpretation, are things that have already happened or are happening, this seal is actually looking to the future. When this seal is opened, that is when Jesus will return and execute his final and total and complete judgment. Uh, the imagery is a little startling, but it's also not unique to the book of Revelation. You find similar imagery in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, in places like Mark 13 and Matthew 24, uh, Jesus himself uh, talks about it and uses some of this imagery. When Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead at his second coming, it will be an occasion of great fear. Uh, after the sixth seal is open, it says, everyone hid themselves in the caves, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. It's a little bit reminiscent of when Adam and Eve, they were in the garden and they, they hid from God, right? Uh, after they disobeyed him. Why did they hide? Well, they were afraid. They were afraid of God. They're afraid of his judgment. And perhaps we can say they were afraid of God because they knew he would be angry. And when Jesus returns, he will come. Uh, I mean, the phrase wrath of the lamb is a scary phrase. He will come in wrath, bringing a finality of judgment upon the entire world. Who wouldn't be frightened by the thought of that, right? Now, uh, now that we have uh, seen uh, what it says about the second coming, uh, we have this interlude in chapter 7. Um, this interlude in chapter 7, I think, is there intentionally because you get this very scary imagery after the opening of the sixth seal. And uh, you encounter the wrath of the Lamb, and you say, that can be scary. Uh, and then, you know, you think about, like, chapter 1, where it says, you know, the whole point of this book of Revelation is to be uh, a blessing. It's for our blessing. And you think, oof, right? The scary imagery, this, these imageries of judgment, how are these a blessing? I think the blessing comes actually in the interlude in chapter 7 between the opening of the sixth seal and the seventh seal. Now, to be sure, there are those who should be frightened regarding the return of Jesus and encountering the wrath of the Lamb. But the ones who should not be frightened are Christian believers. Why? Because they have been marked by God 
so that his wrath would pass over them. See, even though this interlude takes place before the opening of the sixth and seventh seals, I don't think it's necessarily meant to be sequential as if to say, after the sixth seal is open, then the people of God are going to be marked and sealed. Uh, you know, some people interpret it that way, but I think the interlude is there to bring assurance to uh, Christians that they are ultimately going to be protected from the destruction that will come on account of God's judgment. Now, there's a lot of detail in chapter 7, and obviously I won't be able to get into all that detail on account of time, but let me just hit some of the broader points here. Uh, in verse 4, John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. And this kind of seal has a little bit of a different meaning than the opening of uh, the seals on the scroll. With the seals on the scroll, it's the kind of wax seal that would keep the, the scroll closed from prying eyes. And if a, the recipient saw that the wax seals were broken, then that would be an indication that someone who wasn't supposed to open the letter, opened the letter. And, uh, uh, but you know, sometimes those kind of seals can also serve the purpose of identification. Uh, maybe it would have uh, someone's initials or someone's, uh, I don't know, something to, to show that uh, this letter belongs to them or this item belongs to them. You know, in Revelation 7, that's the kind of seal it's referring to when it refers to 144,000 being sealed. I think uh, Jehovah's Witnesses take that number literally, but if you've been following with us, uh, numbers in the book of Revelation uh, do not function literally. Uh, the number 144,000 is simply 12,000 times 12, and 12 is, of course, a, a number representing uh, entirety or fullness. So I think it represents the entire community of the redeemed who have been marked by God. In other words, the, the entire church. Um, this is uh, somewhat reminiscent also of the Passover story. You know, if you remember the Passover story from Exodus 12, God said he would strike down all the firstborn in the land as a way to execute judgments upon all the gods of Egypt, right? That's what the passage says in Exodus 12. But he would pass judgment over any household that had the mark of the blood of the lamb on its doorposts, right? I think this interlude is basically communicating the same message of the Passover by saying that God will seal us with a mark on our foreheads, not in a literal, literal way, but he will mark us uh, on our foreheads so that he might pass judgment over us on account of the blood of the slain lamb in Revelation chapter 5. If you have been in the church for a while, I don't think this is a new message, but it is communicated to us uh, in a powerful way through John's vision. It really, it's really just the, the message of the gospel or the, uh, the narrative of God's story of redemption. Sin, evil, and death has entered into the world on account of Adam's disobedience. But God had a plan to redeem the world through both judgment and through his mercy. He would bring destruction to account for all evil and answer the prayers of the saints who cry out for justice. And in the person of Jesus, he would also receive judgment and become the slain lamb whose blood would mark the community of the redeemed so that his wrath would pass over us in that final judgment so that we would be brought into fellowship with him to worship him, to worship the one who is seated on the throne. And that's God's intention throughout all of history. And one day we will see it come to fruition when Jesus returns again. 
And in that sense, there, there's nothing new theologically in the book of Revelation that you don't get from the rest of the New Testament. But in another sense, I do think the imagery communicates these things to us in a way that makes us really pay attention, right? It would be the difference between reading a textbook of a painting versus uh, being in the presence of a painting and, and just kind of really uh, soaking it in and experiencing uh, whatever is being communicated through the imagery of the painting. You know, both are useful and we may need the textbook to understand the painting, but it's still uh, different than actually looking at the painting. I think Revelation is a little bit like looking at the painting. So on account of the slain lamb, we will be part of the great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And these same robes, which were given to the martyrs in uh, the fifth seal, meant to communicate that they will be victorious and um, that they will be vindicated for uh, their faith and their witness. Uh, what this passage is also saying, this great multitude, that we will also receive those very same robes. We will share in the victory of the Lamb. And John sees that this great multitude in white robes are the ones who will come out of the great tribulation, uh, which, again, I believe is something that we are already living in. Uh, we are already living in war and conflict and death and famine and pandemic and everything else that is painful. And we will come out of it and look forward to this great picture found in verses 15 to 17. And I'm, I'm going to end by reading uh, these verses. And if you want, maybe close your eyes, but just, uh, or just picture the imagery of what this is communicating. It says this, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No matter what kind of suffering we experience, and even when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead at his second coming, if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, then God has marked you. And not only will final judgment pass over you on account of the blood of the Lamb, but you will also be brought into the heavenly throne room in the shelter of God's presence protected from all evil and suffering, drinking from the springs of living water, having God himself wipe away every tear from your eyes. And this is a beautiful story of redemption, of God's redemption that he brings us into on account of his grace. And that's the image I want to leave you with today. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Uh, that you are so uh, gracious to us. And, you know, it is really astounding and, you know, beyond our own comprehension uh, to know that you've had this uh, great plan that, you know, is being unfolded. And uh, for us, the church, we, we live on this side of the cross where 
we can see and we know that your plan has been executed in, in the form of the execution of, of the Son. Um, that we can know that because Jesus died upon the cross and that victory was secured through his death and resurrection, uh, it, I guess uh, in, a, in a certain sense, we have uh, even greater uh, assurance in knowing that you are the one who sits upon your throne because you used things like evil and death and defeat and crucifixion uh, to bring about uh, victory, to bring about the goodness of your plan of redemption for us all. And uh, for that reason, you know, the time is near, as Revelation 1 says, that the time is near. And uh, I guess it's hard not for us for us to not think about it, um, I guess, in minutes and seconds and hours and days. But uh, at least from the unrolling of the scroll um, uh, with the, the slain lamb, uh, the time is near. And we are getting near and near to the point where Jesus will return and uh, where we will be ushered into this throne room where you will wipe away every tear uh, that we've experienced uh, in this earth, in this world. And we long for that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.